Uh, we'll read our scripture first. It's Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any of you, of one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he rather not say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he, was, he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is the word of God for the people of God. And thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we just thank you for the privilege of joining together here with our brothers and sisters in Christ and lifting high the name of Jesus. Father, would you just inhabit the praises of your people? Would you meet us here as we draw near to you, Father? We are hungry and thirsty for more of you. God, we ask that you would bless our tithes and our offerings, that in your mighty will you would multiply them for your kingdom's cause. And Lord, we do pray that you would come and speak to our hearts, that you would speak mightily through Pastor Chris as he shares from your word, and that you would find us obedient, that you would find us receptive. And Lord, that we would have courage to do what it is you tell us to do. It's in Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Good to see you all this morning. I want to say thank you to our worship band for leading us in worship. Can we give them a big hand? Yeah. So thankful for their faithfulness week in and week out. You know, right before the service, Jared and the whole worship band was upset. And uh, they, they were really having a, a moment there. And they were mad and they came to me and they said, Chris, we're upset because you haven't told a joke in a while. I said, well, do you have a joke? And Jared said, yes, I have a joke I want you to tell. And I said, okay, I'll tell your joke. And so here's the joke he told me. It's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, there was a guy uh, who went to church one Wednesday night, and it, it was his turn to give his testimony. And so he goes, and he stands up in front of the crowd that's there, and he, he tells them, you know, he said, God's blessed my life. I'm 50 years old. I just retired. I'm a multimillionaire. He said, but I want, to, I want you to know why God blessed my life. He said, many years ago, I got my first job, went to my first day of work, and I got paid after that first day of work, and I got paid one dollar, a whole dollar. That happened to be a Wednesday night, so I went to church that night, and I heard from a missionary who was talking about this work that God is doing in far parts of the world. And that night, I felt led to give something, but I only had one dollar. I just earned one dollar that day. He said, you know, and I couldn't split it up. I didn't have any change, and so I just felt God tugging on my heart, and I said, you know, Lord, I'm going to give you everything. And that night, I gave him that one dollar, the only dollar I had. And he said, I believe today that's why God has blessed me. 
That's why I'm 50 years old, retired, and a multimillionaire. Everybody was in awe. They, wow. So he went and sat down on the third pew. Whenever he sat down, there was a sweet little old lady sitting there. She said, that story was wonderful. You really gave God everything. He said, I sure did. I gave him everything. She said, I dare you to do it again. <laughs> they liked your joke, Jared. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Luke 17, verses 1 through 10 is where we're going to be. Uh, whenever we come to this passage, we see that Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem. Ultimately, he's going to the cross. And while he's on this journey, he's taking the opportunity to teach uh, the crowds, to teach and interact with the Pharisees and scribes, the religious people of the day. But also, he's taking time to teach his disciples. And that's what we come to here. We see it in verse 1. And again, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross. He knows what's going to happen whenever they make it there. And so Jesus is preparing his disciples for what life is going to be like after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And so as he's on this journey, he's, he's downloading to them. He's in, instilling in them very important things. One of the themes that we see is he's been talking about the dangers of being consumed by earthly wealth. And he's encouraging them and teaching them what it means to have a kingdom agenda. And so he's, he's teaching them over and over as they're on this journey, preparing them. And one of the things that comes up here in chapter 17, verses 1 through 10, if you just read through it, it looks, uh, can look kind of random, but it's not. Because what Jesus is teaching them at this point is he's teaching them about what it means to be a witness. Again, he's preparing them for life after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. He's teaching them what it means to be his people on the earth. And the theme that we see here in uh, chapter 17, the first 10 verses, is about what it means to be a witness. Now that raises the question of, what does it mean to be a Christian witness in the world today? My definition for that is simply this, is that a witness is one that reveals and represents the true nature and character of someone or something through particular actions and words. I'll give it to you again. A witness is one that reveals and represents the true nature or character of someone or something through particular actions and words. And the opposite is also true. If someone is not accurately representing uh, or revealing the nature or character of someone, then they are a false witness. But I believe part of what we are called to do uh, as Christians, the primary part of what we're called to do is that we are to reveal who Jesus is to the world, but we also represent him. Sometimes, uh, whenever uh, we are being a witness, it is new information. It's revelation. So we are revealing who he is, and sometimes it's simply being there as his representative. And whether we're revealing or representing, we want to do that as accurately as possible. So that when people look at us, they see him in us. And so if that's what it means to be a Christian witness, uh, I think we have to understand how this gets worked out in our life. Because there are two ways in which we witness to the world around us. The first one we're more familiar with. And, and the first way that we are a witness is that we're an individual witness as a follower of Christ. Meaning you are a witness of who Christ is and what he has done in your life. 
And the truth is we all have a unique assignment, correct? We're all uniquely made. We're placed here on this planet. And there is something that is unique about our faith walk because there's something that's unique about you as an individual. There's something unique about the way you are gifted and the way you're strategically placed within your family unit, within your broader family, within your workplace, whatever that may be, within your uh, uh, relational spheres that you live in. There's only one you. So in that sense... Uh, us living out our individual calling, it is unique. It is unique. We have a unique assignment. It's, we know that Acts 17 tells us that God determines the times and places in which people live, and we are here now. And our goal then is to accurately reveal and represent who Jesus is and, again, what he has done in our life to those people around us. I'll never forget, I was uh, in a, uh, it was a group setting, there were about 50 of us there, and there was a sweet lady, she was in her early 80s, and she was giving a talk. And she said this phrase that just stuck in my mind. And she was talking about being a witness. And she told us as we were sitting in that room, she says, never forget that you're a witness. And she used this phrase. She said, everybody you come into contact with, remember, you are Jesus with skin on. You are the word being lived out in front of them, but also for them and also to them. And I believe that is so true. The challenge that we have is that in our culture, we are trained and conditioned to think selfishly, though. We are trained and conditioned to think, what do I want to do? Where do I want to go? You know, and, and all of that just tends to flow through us. And we think, well, if other people want to judge me for me doing what I want to do, well, then that's their problem. The problem with that line of thinking that we're programmed, the way we're programmed to think, is that Jesus calls us to live differently. He calls us to consider others so that we may represent and reveal who he is. He calls us to consider how we represent him whenever we interact with other people. So instead of just living our life, what do I want to do? What do I want to go? How do I want to live my life? Now as a Christian, we have this responsibility to think through that and think through the lens of Christ so that people, when they see us again, they see him in us. Now. Most of us, we understand what that means, being a personal, individual witness for Christ. But there's another way in which we are a witness. And the other way in which we are a witness is that there's the corporate witness of a local church. The corporate witness of a local church. And I believe this is important because we believe that every person is called to be a part of a local group of believers. Some of them are larger than others, some of them smaller than others, but every person is called to be a part of a local church. And the reason for that is because of the collective witness that we have in the world. Now, in, in our day today, I get it. There are a lot of reasons why some people would just say, you know, I just want to represent me or represent me and my family, but, but I do not want to identify with a group larger than me. And it's true, there are issues with that. We see it in the news. We see things like the celebrity culture that can come into churches. We see things like the cultish activity of churches and things like that. I get it, I get it, and I hear all that. And again, there are good reasons that we need to enter into a relationship where we're a part of a larger local body. We need to do that with caution, absolutely, absolutely. But just because something is abused does not mean that it does not have value and that it's not important. 
And what Scripture calls us to is to live not only as individuals, as an individual witness for Christ. Yes, we are to do that, and that is where it starts. But also to come alongside other believers, as messy as that can be from time to time. But to come alongside other believers. And I think the beauty of our Christian faith is that we are called to identify with God's people on earth that we might pray and work so that what happens on earth may reflect the reality of heaven. And that's part of what we do when we band together in deep and meaningful ways where we're not only molded into the image of Christ through the relationships that we have, but we also have this collective witness where we can accomplish so much more together than we can apart. And I believe that both of these ways are important for us. Yes, we need to be thinking about and praying through and seeking to live as an individual witness of Christ. But yes, we are called to band together with other believers so that we may be a corporate witness for Christ in the world as well. Because again, we can accomplish more together than we can on our own. And for the last 130 years, we're going to be celebrating that this next Wednesday. For the last 130 years, this is exactly what we've been doing as a church. Whenever we come together on Wednesday and we celebrate and have a big birthday party, we're not just celebrating the fact that we're still here. We're celebrating the fact that we, by God's grace, have been a witness, both in Montgomery and beyond, literally to the ends of the earth. And God has done a work here, and he has shown himself and made himself known through us. That's what we're celebrating. Now, if we can agree that we are called to be an individual witness and we're called to participate in and be a corporate witness for Christ, there's two things I would point out. And that is that um, there are two sources, if you will, that influence or inform our witness. The first one is obvious, and it is God. It is God who dictates the terms and goals of the mission, meaning he tells us what the mission is and how to go about it. And we see that in his word. But the other influence that we have on how we are witnessing uh, around us is culture, actually. Because culture dictates the methodology for the mission. Uh, an example of that would be our worship service here. We, we tend to like it on most Sundays, don't we? Wouldn't you say? We tend to enjoy it. And we have these elements, and we do elements like singing and praying and preaching and all these things in certain ways. However, uh, this service that we participate in here, uh, it, it probably wouldn't be the same or wouldn't work in most places in the world. And it's not that our service is bad and theirs is better. It's not that ours is better and theirs is bad. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with culture. It has everything to do with context. And so even the ways in which we put a worship service together, they're conditioned by our culture. It's not about good or bad. It's about reaching the people that God has placed us in front of. Again, Acts 17, God determines the times and places in which people live. He's placed us here at this time. And while there are elements that you know, would be the same or look similar or whatever, still different cultures dictate how we live out the mission. That's why we need to have missionary mindsets. We need to always have a missionary mindset of how am I reaching the people around me because it was Jesus who prayed that people would come to know him through us because we are here. Are you with me so far? This is a really big introduction, just so you know. This raises another question. 
While we witness individually and corporately as a church, and while God tells us how to go about that mission and we're to reach the culture around us, our methods, the next question that that raises is, what is the best witness that we have? What is the best witness that we have? And I think this is where something our text is getting at today. Our text opens up in verse 1, and it says, And he, Jesus, said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come. It's going to happen. Everybody is going to be tempted to sin. But woe to the one through whom they come. A part of the context here is that Jesus is talking about people who cause other people to be tempted. You can't cause someone else to sin, but you can cause them to be tempted. And when we pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, part of the implication there is that we do not want to lead others into temptation. And again, that's part of our role as the church on the earth. And so there are three things that Jesus points out here. And again, I think these three things are connected and they point to the witness that we have in the world. The first one is that we are a witness when we actively protect and nurture the faith of younger Christians. We are a witness to the world by how we care for when we protect and nurture the faith of younger Christians and even care for them in general. But verse 2, Jesus says, It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, in other places in the gospel, we see this connected, and we tend to point toward children. He can be talking about children, but, but the word for children in Greek is technon. Here he uses another word. He uses the word mikron, which means anyone younger than you. So he's not talking about descendants, like a son or a daughter. He's just talking about those who are younger than you. It's a very general term in that way. That's why I think he's pointing to taking care of, protecting, nurturing younger Christians. And what that means for us is simply this. That if you're a two-day-old Christian, you've been a Christian for two days, then you, to some degree, have a responsibility to be the most accurate representative of Jesus to every one-day-old Christian. You with me there? Okay, no one's with me. Do I need to say that again? See, a lot of times we think in terms of, you know, have you been a Christian for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, whatever. But as soon as you become a Christian and you make it through a day, you then have a responsibility for all those who are coming behind you. Jesus is saying here that you will be a witness to the world in how you nurture the generation behind you. And again, for 130 years, Fraser has done this. Throughout our history, for 130 years, there have been some who have made the mature choice to pour their lives into the younger generations that are coming behind them instead of just looking down on them, which can happen many times. And that's where the church needs spiritual mothers and fathers who will pour their lives into those who are coming behind them. And it, again, yes, it means children, but not just children, also new Christians. But this place has also been a place for 130 years where we valued the role of spiritual mothers and fathers in our lives. And for those of you who are here in the room and you find yourself younger, whether in age or in your faith, I cannot stress the value of having a spiritual mother or father in your life. I cannot stress it enough. 
I cannot stress enough the need that you have to where you can go to someone and you can wrestle through things about faith and how you live those things out in your life. I look back over, the, over my time and the people that have poured themselves into me, people that I would go to. And, it, you know, it's, it, a lot of times we think in terms of mentoring and things like that, we think, you know, it has to be ideal and right. The question is, who has God placed in your life who can instill wisdom, godly wisdom in you? And we all need that. Even to this very day, there are people that I go to for that. But again, this is what Jesus is calling us to, to make sure that we are looking after the generation that is coming up. And the question that always comes up is, oh, well, that sounds great, but how do we do that? Well, Jesus tells us at the first part of verse 3. He says, very simply, pay attention to yourselves. If you want to be a good witness for those who are coming up behind you, pay attention to yourselves. And here's the thing. We need to pay attention to ourselves. Christians, we need to pay attention to ourselves to be aware of how we are living out our faith because be sure that those who are coming behind you, they are paying attention to how you live out your faith. They are watching to see how do you pray? How does faith work itself out in your life when that family crisis happens? How do you do forgiveness? How, how, how do you live all this stuff out that we come and sing about and talk about? Those who are coming behind you, those Christians who are coming behind you, they're watching. And so Jesus' challenge to us is to pay attention to yourselves. He's calling us to become more self-aware, spiritually self-aware. If the world needs anything, it needs a little more self-awareness. Be spiritually self-aware so that you can live out an authentic faith because that's what's going to impact those who are coming behind you in this spiritual family we call the church. So the first thing he says is that we are a witness when we actively protect and nurture the faith of younger Christians. The second thing I think is connected to it. It is we are a witness in how we rebuke, repent, and forgive. He says if your brother, notice he's using family language, if your brother sins, rebuke him. The best definition I can give you for rebuke is care enough to say something. Care enough to say something. Now, this does not give you license to go around just pointing out everything and everybody. Notice there's a relationship. When your brother sins, right, you can talk to your brothers and sisters in a way no one else can. Everybody with me there? When your brother sins in the same family, rebuke him, say enough, uh, care enough to say something, and if he repents, forgive him. Don't heap guilt and shame on him. Verse 4. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And we read that and we say, what's going on there? N notice the number seven is used. And we all know that seven in the Bible represents completeness. And so what Jesus is talking about with his disciples here is he's talking about complete forgiveness. God wants the church to be a place where total repentance and total and complete forgiveness is lived out. Because the world runs off a different currency. The world runs off the currency of unforgiveness. The world runs off the currency of holding grudges. The world runs off the currency of slander. And slandering those you don't like. All of that comes from a place where our heart has been hardened and not regenerate. But the church is supposed to be different. Yes, it is a place where rebuke happens, absolutely. But it's also the place where forgiveness flows. 
And when the disciples hear this, this idea of uh, we're supposed to give complete forgiveness to someone, they say, we can't do this. We need help. Notice what they say in verse 5. It says, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. They hear this idea of we're, we're supposed to challenge one another, yes, but also we're supposed to give complete forgiveness to other people. And they say, well, we need more faith to do that. And Jesus says, really? He says, if you have the faith of a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, interesting, he uses a mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. He uses the image of a mulberry tree, which some people point out has the deepest root system in that part of the world. Think about that. What Jesus is saying is that the deepest roots of unforgiveness, the deepest roots of that grudge that you are holding can be uprooted. It can be. We say things like, well, I'll never get over this, or I don't see how I'll ever get over that, or they hurt me, or whatever it may be. And we say, I don't know if I'll ever get over it. Well, well that's your choice. That's your choice. What Jesus is saying here is that because of his power, even the deepest roots of unforgiveness can be taken up. And then notice they're thrown into the sea. We say, what's that all about? Why does Jesus walk around talking about throwing trees into the sea? Well, remember Micah, the prophet Micah? Jesus has been quoting from Micah throughout Luke's gospel. Micah 7, 19, you, God, will again have compassion on us, and you will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Into the depths of the sea, just as God has the power to cast all of our sins into, it's called, the sea of forgetfulness. Your faith gives you the power to do the same towards others. See, this is why forgiveness is one of the greatest witnesses of the church. You do not find this kind of forgiveness anywhere else in the world. The church has this supernatural witness called forgiveness because forgiveness, true forgiveness, complete forgiveness is supernatural. And just as God, through our repentance, cast our sins into the sea, we can do the same because his power lives in us and give complete forgiveness to others. If you want more about that, we're going to do a whole series on forgiveness the month of January. But Jesus goes on here. And in verse 7, he gives a parable. He says, Well, any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Now, Jesus just laid out a very common scenario in the first century. If someone had servants, those servants would actually eat with their master on many occasions. We tend to think in like Downton Abbey terms, upstairs, downstairs. No, they, they would actually eat uh, with them. But the key was they would come in, they would get clean from working in the field all day or whatever it was they were doing. They would prepare the meal, they would serve the master first, then they would come and be a part of the meal. He's saying, this is how it works. But then in verse 9, he says, does he thank the servant because he has done what he was commanded? He says, does the master just, uh, you know, overly just thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, excessively? He says, so you also. When you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our 
duty. Now, I think Jesus is making a point here, and I want you to see these three. He says, we are a witness in how we nurture the faith of those coming up. We are a witness in how we do rebuking, repenting, and forgiveness as a community. But he also says, we are a witness to the world in how we do love-driven service. You see, when love is the motivation for our service, we don't want special recognition. When love is the thing that drives us, when love is the motivation for serving our king, we want to be counted among those who are part of the great cloud of witnesses. We want to be counted among those who are the nameless and faceless, that cloud of witnesses that simply serve to make a collective impact, bringing God's will on earth as it is in heaven. When we're motivated by love, when we're motivated by selfishness, we want recognition. It has to be about us. We want our name on a plaque somewhere. We want a title of some kind. We want someone to cheer for us. But when love is the thing that motivates us, we are content with being the nameless and faceless group that makes a collective and larger impact. When love motivates our service, that's when you find yourself, though, also content, not content, excuse me, not content with just doing the minimum. And that's what he's talking about here. Not just doing the minimum. There's a difference between your minimum effort and you doing that just because you were commanded to do it and your best effort and it takes love it takes being transformed by the love of God for you to be compelled to give your best in service to him and what Jesus tells us here is that if you're going to be a witness Yes, sin is going to happen in the world, but don't be a part of the temptation. Instead, you nurture and take care of those who are coming behind you. The world will see that. Yes, you are honest with people and you love people enough to rebuke them, but let forgiveness flow. The world will see that. But then let love be the thing that motivates you to serve. Don't just do the minimum. Don't just do the minimum commands for God or even the minimum of what other people ask you. No, let love drive you to serve even more that you go the second and third mile because the world will see that. This Wednesday night, we're going to celebrate 130 years. And part of what we're celebrating is that people who have lived this out in beautiful and powerful ways and also what's going to happen on Wednesday night is we're going to challenge ourselves once again. We're going to challenge ourselves and say, God, what is it that you're calling me to at this time? Who are those that you are calling me to band together with? What ministry area are you calling me to be a part of so that we can be a collective witness? The world cannot ignore this kind of behavior. The world cannot ignore radical care for younger generations. The world cannot ignore radical forgiveness and accountability. And the world cannot ignore radical service that's motivated by love. If we would do that, just think of the impact that it can have for the kingdom. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you because you have called each of us. You've called each of us as individuals and you have called us together. And so, Lord, we pray in this moment, we ask that our service would not be about us, that what we do would not be about us, 
but we would see you and you alone. That we would look into the face of other people in whatever way we do life together, in whatever way we serve. And we say, Lord, we do it unto you. We do it unto you. I pray that you would give us a heart that truly desires to reveal and represent who you are in beautiful and authentic ways. And Lord, may we not dare try to do that alone, but may we do it together. Lord, we love you. We really do. And we thank you for loving us. We pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name and everybody said. Well, church, would you stand and respond with us now?